Enjoy local voices. Enjoy local opinions. All on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts. Featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local. Mean O'Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome black, black, black to another episode of the Black Arm of the Law. I am your host, the one and only Carl Payne. Today's guest is none other than Mr. John Edwards. John has served as special agent in the United States Secret Service, the USSS, since 1997. So over the past 24 years, he has served in multiple criminal and protective assignments. John's current role is deputy special agent in charge. So, you know how we say the HNIC. He is the DSAIC of the Office of Strategic Planning and Policy, the OSP. John is responsible for the entire directorate's daily operations, emphasizing critical high-profile enterprise-wide projects and special programs. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Black Armor of the Law, Mr. John Edwards. My brother, John Edwards, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, Tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Detroit, Michigan. Uh, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Um, uh, the whole story, right? Single parent, the whole deal. Papa was a Rolling Stone. Detroit? Yes. Motown. <laughs> Motown. I just left Detroit. I just left Detroit like two days ago. When's the last time you've been back? Uh, I just went back. My mom actually finally sold uh, uh, the, the family home. Mm. And so that was last month. So that wow. I was just back last month. Wow. What was that like? The city is really changing. Uh, phenomenal. Downtown really looks uh, much, much, much better than it did. Um, yeah, because y'all was yeah. going through it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. Oof, oof. Yes. Oof. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love Detroit. I used to go there all the time. And then, you know, I, I went back several times over the past decade or so. And I'm like, what in the where Where am I? A rough time. I think the failure to adjust to no more uh, auto plants or a reduced auto plants really didn't help us at all. No, it, it was the mayor. It was his fault. No, I'm not blaming any mayors. <laughs> you know who you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Who's helping revitalize the city right now? What's his name? Dan, right? Gilbert. Gilbert. I heard he's doing like a lot of major things in the city, man. Yes. Yes, and it, it, I was just there this past week and it rained the entire time and there was like these ridiculous floods, ridiculous floods. I was like, what is this? Are we, are we in Texas? Where are we? Yeah, my mom told me. Oh, uh, yeah. Yep, yep. So what was it like selling your, your family home though? Like what, how'd that feel? You know, I because um, she is um, in her early 80s, I was quite relieved. Not uh, the, the memories were fantastic, but um, she was getting uh, my brother moved, my brother who was staying there. So it took kind of a lot of load off my mind because it was just too much for her to maintain at her age. So I was actually relieved and really, really shocked at how quickly uh, it sold because the real estate market has just gone crazy now, as I'm sure you you know, everywhere in the country. So so I was really, really, really uh, that it, it was actually a relief for me. It wasn't it wasn't nostalgic in that. Oh, God, you know, all the family memories and stuff. Um, 
and my mom is an absolute organizer so she said she said hey i've got all these pictures and i've got all this stuff and i just need to you to come home so she was like come home like a week early and help me take care of it and literally carl it was a box the shoe box she had every i was like this is it she was like oh yeah yeah you know i just want you to go through and shred some things i'm like you you wanted me to drive from dc to come through and okay you know hey it's mom right so yeah she had taken care of it all so really really excited that she could downsize and that she could do that while she's still healthy and while she's still driving and while everything is still good to go. Nice, nice, nice. All right, so you grew up there with the Papa was a Rolling Stone. What was... uh what was the catalyst for you wanting to join the law enforcement? So the catalyst, it's a fat story, but I'll make it I'll make it skinny. I left at really at 17. I joined the Navy at 17. Joined the Navy, got in some great travel and wound up at uh, Hampton University when uh, I got out. I got out because I wanted to go back. So the point was to go. Fake HU. Right. I got you. See, okay. See, this is is where it goes off the rails. And then, you know, I mean, okay. All right. See, the real... The, the real HU that was actually founded for the descendants of slaves, we, we talked about that another time. But anyway, was going back to the military, was going to get a degree and go back as an officer. Crazy enough story, there, and my life is a series of accidents, and you, you'll see what I mean. There was a, um, a shooting, a murder, actually, just at off-campus, at an off-campus party. And the um, individual who was convicted for that, he came and brought the weapons to our house. So the police come and they just get all of us. Like my roommates, or one of my roommates had gotten out of the Navy with me and was planning on also going back as an officer. He actually did go back as an officer and and just recently retired. So um, grabbed everybody up, took everybody down, and through a whole lot of questioning and a whole lot of other stuff, realized that I wasn't even at the party where the actual shooting happened. But in the course of that, as they were trying to build a case, they wanted to know where the weapon came from. So they sent the ATF to the house. Now, again, I mean, uh, absolute coincidence. Again, like I said, I was going back to the Navy. The co- the the uh, agents came when I was taking a criminology course as an elective. The criminology book was laying on my dining room table. And as they were interviewing me about where this weapon came from, which I had no idea, they said, hey, you're a veteran. You seem to answer our questions pretty well. You seem like you might be a good fit for law enforcement. Something I had not even thought of. Are you sitting? Wait, wait. So while they were investigating you, they offered you like a, an opportunity. <laughs> while they were investigating where the weapon came from, they Crazy. said, "They said, hey, you you might be." I mean, after they figured out that I did not know where the gun came from because it was purchased out of state, they said, "Hey, you know, you you should think about it." And they said, "We noticed the criminology book. Are you a criminology major?" And I was like, "No, I'm not." Um, and they said, "Well, you know, you should give federal law enforcement a thought." And the really crazy thing was, so the Secret Service borrows agents during presidential campaigns because of our size. We borrow, now we borrow people from uh, DHS, but previously we borrow people from Treasury. So ATF was part of Treasury then. They had been borrowed to be on then candidate Clinton, President Clinton's detail. 
So they had come off the detail and they said the Secret Service is the best thing going. And we think the FBI is great, too. And I said, well, you guys are ATF. You know, what about your agency? And they were like, well, we're going through a lot right now because they were going through the Waco, Texas, Branch Davidian thing. And they were like, we don't even know how we're going to who we're going to hire. We don't know what our hiring thing is going to be. But the Secret Service treats people great, great everything. And the FBI is, you know, is, is, is phenomenal for investigations. So they gave me the minority recruiter for the FBI's phone number. And they gave me the special agent then in charge of the Norfolk field office for the Secret Service. Because I was attending a HBCU, of course, I called the minority recruiter first. And he says, well, yeah, you're a veteran, but we, if you're not a lawyer, if you're not in, if you're not a lawyer, or if you're not an accountant, or if you do not speak, have fluency in a, another language, right now we're not really interested. And the special agent in charge of the Secret Service answered the phone and said, "Hey, come on down to my office." What was that process like? It was pretty arduous. There was a. It took about two and a half years from the time I walked into the Secret Service office to the time I actually got hired. Part of that was I was graduating. The other part was was there were some government freezes and some hiring freezes that were government-wide. So it took a while. So in the interim, I went into the family business, which was teaching school. And I also was a security officer at the State Department at night. So I was kind of, I guess people are calling it on your purpose these days. They're saying that a lot. And so I was on my purpose then uh, to, to get in. But then basically the Secret Service walked into my classroom a few years later and said, OK, the hiring freezes are over. And uh, if you're still interested, welcome. Welcome to the Secret walked Service. into your classroom. Yes. The, there was a special agent that I was teaching his son. OK. And he walked into my classroom and said, come on home. Right. So, yeah. OK. I was like, wow, man, they didn't, they didn't even give you a phone call like a minute. Black. It, just, <laughs> it just rolled up on you like, yeah, you ready? Rolled in. He rolled right in. So then and then how long was the training process? After? The, tra- the training process is approximately six to seven months, depending on the break between your uh, special agent class. Everyone goes to um, to uh, FLETSI, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. That's what all where where most federal agents go. I think the bureau. What does that include? What does that, what does that training include? That training includes basic policing. So or in basic investigations, uh, driving, uh, firearms proficiency, you know, basic. Uh, fighting, that sort of thing. What special training do you guys go through? Okay, so so the so so it goes like this: after your first three months, and everybody is a basic criminal investigator, then go to Secret Service for the secret sauce, right? For the real training, protection, how to protect people, the extra firearms training, all of the things that agents are known for. So it's three months in in in, in the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, which is called FLETSI, and then there's another three months outside of D. Now, during your training, did you encounter any, um, you know, any type of racism? So I was very um, aware of of the of the nature of the business. So I was the only African-American recruit in my class. I was alone. My best friend on the job, his class came in about three weeks after ours did. And he was alone. So we kind of became friendly. There was no racism in training. The pressure I put 
on was pressure I put on myself, right? I was determined that because I was the only African-American, I was going to do everything as well as possible. And so I pushed myself, I mean, from, you know, we're graded on a lot of academic. I mean, it's been said that training is kind of like, you know, some type of a ranger school and then uh, a law school like at night, right? So you're you're learning federal law, you're learning how to how to arrest when to arrest people, how to seize things, you're learning that, and then you're also doing the physical part, and then you're also doing the firearms part, which the Secret Service firearms proficiency uh because you as you can imagine, anytime we are going to engage someone is probably going to be in a more crowded area because of what we do, right? The crowds, protection, etc. So we are graded on all the physical stuff, the firearm stuff, and the and the academic stuff. And I was determined to be at or near the top of every category because I was the only African American. And it actually helped me because uh, putting that pressure on myself, some people can't, but I was able to say, you know, I'm going to be, you know, as good as anybody. And they're never going to be able to say, oh, they just had to take an African American guy. And to, to my surprise, almost everyone I graduated with in training uh, 24 years ago, and I are still close. We're still friends. All the uh, all of the other agents, all of them white, um, all of them male except one. We had one female. They accepted me into the brotherhood because I was determined that I would I would never be I would never lag. I will always try to be if not in the lead, close to the top. So once you pass training, is there <laughs> is there some sort of initiation where they're like, because you know how when you're in court, right? And then you, you put your hand on your Bible and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Do they be like, do you swear to take this bullet? Do you swear to jump in front of the bullet? <laughs> like understood, but I feel like it's got to be some sort of like, yeah, well, you did agree. So um, there is no initiation to take the bullet. However, uh, there is a there is a unit cohesion that happens, particularly when you're protecting people and you would be willing to take the bullet for one another. It's not Hollywood, right? Uh, That's what I was going to say. You're, you're a Hollywood saying. dude. You're a Hollywood dude. So, you know, Hollywood. it's not Hollywood. Hollywood is like, I got you as a president. Uh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like- no, no. If you're where you're supposed to be and you are doing what you're supposed to be doing, then you should get hit. If the vector of the attack is coming from where you are, that's going to happen. I would just say, depending on details, listen. I know what you're going to say. The money got it. No. I'm not taking a bullet for a Happy Meal. It's just not happening. The money got to be Hollywood. You dig know what I'm saying? It's got to be a little different. Well, I, I can say it, it's definitely not Hollywood money. You, you asked the question about being an African-American. I had always, me, myself, and my compadres who make up, I think African-Americans make up less. As an agent population, we're, we're about 10, we're, we're a little less than 10% of the, yeah. of the agent population. And I think all of us, all agents, all 3,700 of us, all of us never want to be in that history book. See, you you know, everything's on video now, right? So so Carl Payne leaping out the way or hiding behind the steps is going to get caught on film. I'm just going to get sick. 
I'm just going to develop a cough on January 6th and not show up. So on the subject, what, what happened on January 6th? Um, well, first, it did not happen to the Secret Service. No, but I want your opinion and I want your, your view on, 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 on what happened that day or what should have happened. I think it's overwhelming when you have maybe 350 Capitol Police officers on duty and you've got You've got 10,000 people, even if you say only 2,000 of them might have been active. Again, we talked about it's not Hollywood, right? So you're already far, far, far outnumbered. And once it starts to go bad, if the responding units, meaning the uh, National Guard, uh, the people who are there to help you are not on scene, uh, you're not you're not winning that. I mean, you know, Hollywood is great, but you're not going to. Those odds were just absolutely beyond um, what the Capitol Police could have could have dealt with without significant backup. I cannot speak on Capitol Police procedure, um, but from a protective agent's point of view, there comes a point where, and I don't know the tactics of what was happening because uh, I wasn't there, but uh, there comes a point at which if they get past you, there's only your protectee left. There's no more batons and there's no more sticks and there's no more pepper spray. There's just you. And at that point, maybe the senators or congressmen or whoever they were trying to protect. So I don't know that. And, and when you're assigned to protect someone, you know, we, we joke and, and stuff about, you know, taking the bullet and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's such a serious matter. Right. And I think it was at the point at which, you know, if I were saying if I lose this post, mm-hmm. um, the president or the vice president is going to get dragged out on the steps. Hey, you, I, I'm not. I don't know if I'm gonna have a bullet left. To right. be, to be quite honest, I, I just believe that it's it's a it's an incredibly tough scenario to be in. Have you ever been in a situation, uh, a tense or or should I say, a scary or you know, one of the, have you ever been in any tough spots or situations yourself? Um, yes, absolutely, uh, and. While I can't discuss the details of the thing I can tell you that carries the day is all of the training. Right. I mean, and it sounds cliche, you know, people. Um, and I remember I was watching a football game. I'm really a football guy. And I was watching a football game one time and a coach said on television, he said, I think the reporter asked, are you scared? Are you nervous? And the coach said, if you're prepared, you know, you're never scared. And what that kind of the Secret Service mentality, everything in the Secret Service is the preparation for the event, because when an event begins to happen, much like a January 6th, anything. You are only going to be able to operate at the level of your training and preparation. So the preparation for the event is what saves you. The preparation, the fact that you come into town, you know, a week or two weeks before the president and you do all the things that we do and you check all the things that we check and you, you've seen all the documentaries about all of the, you know, prepping the hospital and prepping the everything. And then so when it actually happens, it is a it's a it's a it's a well-oiled orchestrated event. And I think when you're outside of that, that's when you get nervous and that's when things happen. So the training, the training prepares you and that training kicks in. Yes. It's almost like automatic. Yes. 
So what, why do you think, you know, because on this show, we talk a lot about bridging the gap between the black and brown community and law enforcement. Yes. And we we also like to hear uh, from black law enforcement, you know, their side of the story in terms of when I say their side of the story, I mean, you know, their experiences from being on that side of the so-called wall. Right. Because Mm -hmm. realistically, we're all supposed to be in this thing together. Why do you think it is then that the training fails? When it comes to the black and brown community as human beings and as people who can assess a situation. Right. I'm not going to shoot a 60, 70 year old lady for a traffic stop. You know, I'm not going to choke out a guy who's trying to sell some CDs. Like, I I mean, you know, it's kind of like, where's what training are we talking about? Because at the end of the day, I'd, I'd like to know where that where's that training that says, hey, here's a guy selling CDs. Let's choke him to death. Let's you know, I'm trying to figure out why he seems to be more threatening or why even a woman of color who's 75 years old needs to be drugged out of a car by her hair. Why is she why why are we somehow more threatening? There there's a couple of parts to this. First, I'd like to say that the one thing I have always been impressed with over my 24 years was the way that special agents in the Secret Service and mm-hmm. uniform division officers handled these types of situations because the special agents and the uniform officers were in the thick of things, myself included, on the night of all the unrest in the uh, both after the Capitol and after the uh, the George Floyd when the when the protests were going on in D.C. and a couple of things. And now this is not Secret Service. This is this is this is John Edwards' view of law enforcement after having so many years. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, for, to so the first thing is that we need to recruit and hire African Americans and Black and Brown individuals. I'm such a firm believer in this that. Two of my nephews are, are are Secret Service employees. Both of them working and are active. So, and as a side, the Secret Service is hiring all positions and all of uh, 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 classes, uniform division and special agent right now. And um, we have amazing uh, opportunities to get into federal law enforcement. The other part of what you're talking about is. I read somewhere when law enforcement encounters African-Americans, sometimes the law enforcement attempts to establish control. When other races are dealt with, they are enforcing the law. The difference is the energy that gets inserted into the scenario. One of my mentors, who is a great law enforcement officer, well, he's retired now, he said it like this. The energy that is happening in a situation is a lot of times generated from the officer or the agent. So he said, do this. He said, hey, if you and your wife are getting ready to leave the house and your wife doesn't have her seatbelt on and you're pulling away and you say, you look over and you say, hey, babe, you know, can you put your seatbelt on? You know, can you, you know, buckle up? We don't want anything to happen. You know, your wife's going to buckle up then you're going to move on. But if you say, you know, damn it, put that seatbelt on. I'm tired of this. Every time I'm trying to pull off, you know what's going on. You're going to get hurt. And it right. That energy into that scenario changes everything. 
even though I was just talking about putting the seatbelt back on, right? So looking at the energy that, that we, and, and that, again, that's what I love about the Secret Service, the professionalism with which we deal with people because of the operations we have. If I'm in a $200,000 a couple dinner with Secretary Clinton or President Obama or President Biden or President Trump, and I'm like, hey, you know what? Get over there. What, what are you doing? Right. Why, why you got your hands in your in your pockets? Get, get it together. Right. I'm not going to do that. The professionalism is built into the Secret Service, which is why I've been so comfortable here for so long, because we deal with people that we just have the utmost respect for everyone. That's why there was no complaints. What happens on the street, however, sometimes police officers go to establish control. We pull over Carl, we see Carl, and instead of, hey, sir, you blew that stop sign, it's, hey, get your hands where I can see him. It's a totally different thing. And that's what I think we have to train out of law enforcement. When I pull Carl Payne over, I need to pull Carl Payne over. Or when I stop Carl Payne in an event, I have to stop Carl Payne and say, hey, Mr. Payne, you blew that stop sign right there. I mean, we got kids in the neighborhood and you're going to say, hey, man, I was just, I, I was on my phone or I was just doing I, I didn't even see it, man. My bad. And then that's just how it goes. But I think we add in a level of the energy when we are dealing sometimes with African-Americans and Latino, Latinos, uh, Hispanics. We sometimes add in energy that is not present. And that makes law enforcement difficult for the vast majority of us who are just trying to do the thing and go home. Yeah, I think I think uh, definitely there has to be a different training needs to change. You know, there's a lot of things that need to be implemented now into training. Uh, vetting of officers need to be uh, a little different as well. I think um, I think you're right. I think there needs to be an influx of, of brown and black people in law enforcement. You know, and I think there has to be some sort of uh, relatable sensitivity training and a whole bunch of other things that needs to be uh, implemented. Because, um, you know, I mean, there's, there's really, I mean, there's no excuse for a lot of stuff and it just becomes plain and simple. It just becomes obvious as to what's actually happening, you know, because it's, you know, the, the, the same offenses get dealt with very differently based on the color of skin more times than not. And it, and it, and it is a very, very difficult personal struggle for those of us who are in law enforcement who have never violated any right, always... Yeah, grabbed bad guys, yes. Arrested people, yes. You know, chased people, all that, yes. But never took it there. Have you ever, uh, you know, experienced this off-duty yourself? Yes, I can remember when I was a young... uh, a young agent. I was I was going too fast. I was speeding. I was I was in a I was in a rush. I was trying to get to. I was actually trying to get to an assignment. Um, going going again way too fast. So when I was approached by the officer, it was the approach like get your hands where I can see him, that sort of thing. And I said, I'm a federal agent and I was on duty. Well, I was heading for duty. But again, I was dressed like I am right now. So it's, right. you know, we, we always dress like this since we don't have a uniform. And it was like that. The switch was instantaneous. He went from, you know, 
40,000 feet. He said, okay, okay, let me see your credentials. You know, do it slow. I showed him my credentials. Then he's like, then he goes, well, you know, where the heck are you going like that? Like, like if you like, and I was like, Hey, I got, I'm, I'm late for an assignment. I was a young agent. The one thing about the secret service is, you know, 15 minutes early is late. So you never want to be late. Right. And, and I was trying to get there and he said, you know what? He was like, I'm not going to give you a, a big, you know, a, a rah-rah speech, but if you get hurt out here, you're going to be no good to your protectee. But as soon as I said who I was, and I think it kind of, maybe I have the look, the, the, the blazer, the open collar, I, I may, you know, the officer looked like, oh God, you know, another fed, because in, in DC, you could probably throw a rocket every car that has somebody with a badge in it, right? right you know, right. between the FBI, the Secret Service, the Capitol, everybody here. So yeah, but that was, it, it, we were able to bring it down really, really quickly. Thank goodness. So tell us a little bit about what you do now. Now that I am older um, and, and wiser, I am the deputy special agent in charge of the Office of Strategic Planning and Policy. So essentially, the strategic the Office of Strategic Planning and Policy is the planning and it's, it's almost like the think tank of the Secret Service. And when I graduated from grad school, they sent me over there and my job is to operationalize strategy. So if we have a new weapon system, if we have a new piece of body armor, a new piece of equipment. My job is to make sure that the agents and officers can wear it, that it functions properly, and that the mission is met uh, by these the, the equipment that we're going to get. Uh, also, I lead the um, the special agents that are that are that go to grad school. So we have several agents at any one time in different defense department graduate school programs, and also I lead business development. I lead in a section that tries to bring business practices into the federal government. So the Secret Service is and the FBI are kind of revolutionary in that we bring in MBAs and we bring in people from uh, the civilian world to say, okay, we can change your business practices to make them more efficient. You know, you, you buy X amount of limousines, you know, this is how you can do it better. You buy X amount of cars, you have X amount of equipment, it has life cycles, those sorts of things. That's what I do uh, now. And of course, mess around with the budget and resourcing. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. I'd like to hear more about that at some point. So a couple of things before we jump off, because time flies by so quickly. What was your favorite law enforcement show growing up? Oh, gosh. Growing up. SWAT. SWAT growing up. All right. If there was someone from your past or your childhood that you could arrest, <laughs> who, would be, who would it be and why? My childhood? God. Or your past. Yeah. It could have been the school bully. Could be anybody. You know, the guy from the neighborhood who took your bike for a ride and never came back. It, I'm la- I'm not laughing. The guy who did that, the only bully that I ever had in my life, because we got into, we ended up getting into a huge fight. He actually got arrested. He's, I think he's still in jail. Everyone says that. Every time he's, I ask the question, it's always, whoever the guy is, he, he got his comeuppance. You know he did. I mean? he, he did. He he did. Oh, I know who I would arrest. I, I know who I, I I'm going to think, of, I thought of somebody in my past. I was actually, I was just accepted for training. I ended up seeing this man later, but I didn't get a chance to arrest him. 
I was I was with the uh, a girlfriend at the time, and he robbed us at a at a like a Coney Island in Detroit. But I know you're familiar with plenty of Coney Islands in Detroit. Yeah. Now, when you say he robbed you, what do you mean? He robbed. He just he just walked up to us. We were standing at the counter. We were next in line. He stood in front of us between us and the counter and he didn't point the gun at me he just put the gun right in her chest and he was like just go ahead and give it up and i was like and the crazy part was i I was one of those people who never carry cash but on this day i had cash and so i was like okay you know so i gave him the money and the girl that i was dating at the time was like she like he started to walk away and he got about probably 10 feet and she just went off like started yelling at him and screaming at him and i'm thinking to myself man oh god you know what i'm saying like come on this is getting ready to be thick because he had because, a gun in your chest but right see, that's some hard-ass detroit women boy <laughs> she, she thought about it. she said wait a minute yeah man she went off but but she you know it, it was like shock. It was like she was shocked and then she came out of it and all the things she was thinking, she said it. But it was like, he was like, I said, he was like 10 feet away. And what did he do? He just looked and was like, whatever. Basically, he was like, I got the money now and, you know, and I got the gun. So whatever. And he just, he walked off. But I mean, I remember thinking to myself, man, you know, caught slipping because I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm preparing to go into federal law enforcement yeah. I'm th- and I could... And the other thing was that, and this has happened to me a few times since then, when stressful situations come like that, you hear and see and smell everything. So I remember, I was like, dang, he smells like weed. He's probably high, right? I remember smelling like some alcohol. I was like, oh man, the red eyes, the whole thing. And I remember thinking to myself, and it's a weird thought, but I was thinking to myself, I wonder if he shoots her, can she take a bullet? Like that was my actual thought. You know, you, you just had, you think weird things at weird times. Uh, and I remember thinking that like, dang, you know, I wonder... You know, right? Because I know from training that most people get shot live, right? You know, you know, about maybe eighty percent of people that get shot actually survive, especially handgun shots. Probably not with it pressed to her chest. Well, yeah, but you know, saying, "Hey, man, it was going on my head." So I was thinking to myself, "Man, so if I could go back and arrest anybody." So you said you saw him, though. You saw him. I, I did see him. I saw him. Because he had a very distinctive mark on his face. I saw him, but I was in Detroit uh, and I was working another assignment at the time when I couldn't really break cover or I couldn't really, there was nothing I could do at that moment about uh-huh. seeing him. So, yeah. What did you think of that Clint Eastwood movie, Line of Fire? <laughs> Line of Fire made a lot of people join the Secret Service. I think now, I thought then it was a great movie. I think now nobody's going to be running along the side of the limo at like his age when he was doing it. But yeah, I mean, it it was a good movie. Let me ask you a question. Uh, You know, uh, just just thought of this. The the John F.K. assassination. What uh, did that create new protocols new you know what i'm saying new 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 uh situations i mean or, or were some of those things do you know was that some of those uh training uh, implemented back then you know like the whole like you scout it 
right? You scout, you scout. I mean, but there's only so much you can do, right? And so many areas you can cover. Yeah, I think the Secret Service went through a pretty radical transformation from what I've read about like the Warren Commission, the things I've read about it. Um, and yeah, actually, yeah. and actually the practice, obviously, in riding in an open top car. I mean, I think that you, you would agree that that is probably not something that the president does anymore. I mean, you can look at the presidents and see that they don't ride in convertibles anymore, right? right? I mean, you know, the the vehicles that we have are, you know, uh, state of the art, uh, wonderful. As there are incidents that may not happen to the Secret Service, but let's say something happens in another country. We look at that and say, oh, what does that mean for us? If, if, it, if there's an attempt on some world leader's life, we study that and say, hey, um, how could we prevent that on, you know, on our watch? We learn a lot of lessons, thank God, by, you know, other other different uh, protective organizations have gone through things and we try to learn by what they've gone through. So would you ever be interested in like, you know, how much longer do you have with the service? Um, I pr- um, I pr- I'm eligible to retire right now. Any aspirations of starting your own private security company? Uh, no, uh, I am. I Well, no, I won't say no. I'll say I, I have transitioned into my new passion. Well, two new passions. One is futures, futures, strategic futures. If you say I have a business, then I would be able to say, okay, in 10 years, these are the things that are going to affect your business. So for example, if you said, hey, what is, um, what is Hollywood going to be like? What, what are studios, what kind of technology are studios going to be using in 10 years? Mm-hmm. Because I'm now a junior G-man futurist. I can say, hey, in 10 years with camera technology changing and with AI and machine learning, this is what you're going to be looking at as far as your as far as your business. So that too, um, I have a recent passion that I've gotten into that's in my bio and and that's drone. I think drones are the beginning of the Internet. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, you think was, you was, think Skynet was, and all that? Yeah. All right. Just. Yeah. yeah, no, not not the beginning of the end, but this is the beginning of our new uh, internet. If you didn't invest in Google um, twenty years ago, it, get get into some drones. Every phase of human endeavor will be airborne probably within the next 15 to 20 years. So that's what I want to go into. Interesting. Interesting. Man, you're an interesting cat, John Edwards. Thank you for joining <laughs> us today, man. You you uh, you have shed some light on some new things and and uh, gave a different perspective that I don't think we've ever talked to a secret, secret service agent before. Um, you know, uh, we're going to have to revisit this when you're done so we can really find out some stuff. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then we'll have another conversation at that point. But until then, here ended the lesson. Thank you for joining us, John Edwards. Thank, thank you. Thank you, sir. And and make sure you give the www.secretservice.gov a look because we're hiring. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Redd, courtesy of Soul Real Records. 
Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. 